At this time, the children are dismissed up through third grade for Children's Church. And I'll invite everyone else to find 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in your Bibles. First Corinthians chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 31. As you're finding your way there, one of the benefits of going out of town, especially for an extended period of time, like a week, I know many of you have had vacations this summer too, and you'll agree with me that one of the biggest benefits is that when you remove yourself from your normal day-to-day situation, you gain a fresh perspective on the matters that you face in your normal day-to-day situations. And when we're, we're living our normal lives, we tend to get bogged down in sort of the maze of things, and we just see the walls right in front of us, and just the next turn and the next decision. And when you get away, it's, it's like all that becomes a little bit smaller, and you can hold it out and look at it a little bit more objectively without as much emotion and and often you come back with clarity on things that you were confused about before you left or um, decisions that you couldn't seem to make when you were in the thick of it but that you were able to, to make while you were away. That, am I the only one that experiences this on vacation? Some of you also? Okay, people are looking at me like, I've never been on vacation. I don't know what you're talking about. I've worked every day for the last 60 years. Anyway, that's also one of the benefits of reading God's Word. When we read God's Word, we see His perspective on our life, on reality in general. So if we're living our life inside the maze, when we look at life through the lens of God's Word, we're zoomed way out to an eternal perspective, to God's perspective. We can see the full picture of things. So we come here today, and that's what I hope that you'll gain. I've gained a lot of that through studying this passage for this Sunday. Um, I didn't decide the title soon enough to put it on anything, but I would title the sermon, Gaining Eternal Perspective on Temporary Things. That's what I hope we'll do. This passage talks about a lot of practical daily matters. It talks about marriage. It talks about singleness. It talks about emotional ups and downs. It talks about possessions and endeavors in this world. So I think this will be really helpful for us today. I'd like to read it, but first... Let's just pause for prayer once more. Let's ask for God's help. Because the last thing we want to do is waste 15, 20, 30 minutes, however long I decide to go, just you hearing things that I have to say. Or your mind wandering and thinking about what's for lunch. We have an opportunity to hear from God directly through His Word. So let's pray. Let's ask Him to help us with this. Let's ask Him to speak to us. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for giving us your word. You have promised us your Holy Spirit would fill us when we became Christians and would guide us into all truth and would enlighten us into your word, whereas before we were blinded to it. So I ask that you would help that to happen now. Help us to receive your word. Help us to be transformed by it in our thinking, in our living, in our worshiping in our relationships. And let your word go forth and accomplish your purposes among us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Let's just start by reading the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 31. 
Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, I think you'll agree with me that this is an odd passage. This is one reason, again, I like preaching through books of the Bible, because you come to passages you might not otherwise preach. I wonder if you've heard this passage before. Well, I know I've shared it with you before. But I wonder if you've thought about it. There's a lot in here. I just want to point out three things. The first thing we notice isn't really the main point of the passage. It's more the underlying context of the passage. And that's that these Christians, these Corinthian Christians, sought counsel. And so should we. Now what I mean by that is, you can tell by this letter that the Corinthian Christians had written Paul and had a bunch of questions for him about practical matters. And everywhere in the letter where you see a new thought begin with, now concerning, fill in the blank, Here's what I have to say. He's responding to some specific question that they had asked him. So the Corinthian Christians sought counsel. They went looking for advice. They wrote Paul asking for help and advice about matters of practical living and being a Christian in the world. They sought counsel, and so should we. Look again at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, betrothed there, the the word literally means virgin, And in context, it most likely means a young woman who is, we'll use the word engaged because it's kind of the closest cultural correspondence that we have with it. Although betrothal wasn't exactly the same as our engagement. It was sort of like our engagement minus any romance. It was kind of a contract between two families that these two people were going to be married. And it was assumed that love would grow from that commitment. But it was kind of a... a, a, formal and serious commitment to be married. That seems to be what they have in mind. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So if you read through the book, you'll see him say, now concerning celibacy. We talked about that passage a couple times back. Now now in this one, now concerning betrothal, here's my advice. In a few weeks, we'll see, now concerning food, here's some advice. And then later, now concerning spiritual gifts, here's some advice. And then later, now concerning the collection for the saints, the offering he was taking up, here's what I have to say. So we're sort of seeing one side of this conversation, and we get the sense that the Corinthian Christians sought counsel. 
They wrote to Paul asking for his advice about betrothed people. Now, when I first became a pastor, many of you remember that because it was here with you guys. I was 27. I never pastored a church before, obviously. Um, did not feel up to the task in my own abilities. Very much still feel the same way. But some very good advice was given to me early on. And that was to seek counsel often. I went about very early on building sort of a team of counselors. I, I kind of started with Ron Thomas. He was officially my mentor and Glenn and Balser. I would call them all the time, asking them questions. Beyond them, I got to meet other pastors in the denomination and through the headquarters, and I would be calling them and asking them questions. And then I felt I still needed more. I wanted some advice beyond just the, the Advent Christian realm, so I, I got online and researched healthy churches in the area and started meeting with pastors of these other churches. And I would just, they didn't know me at all. I would just email them or call them and explain, you know, hey, I'm Matt, I've just started pastoring a church, and uh, just looking to make connections with people who are more experienced than I am. Wondered if I could get together and pick your brain a little bit. Or if we could grab a cup of coffee or a bite to eat. And they were always up for it. Pastors are very uh, generous and kind toward younger pastors who are terrified. And I still have this team. And I've even got professors from, from years back that I'll still email and ask questions. And it's been so important for me. It's been very important for you. You may have thought that I've done some dumb things as your pastor. You wouldn't believe some of the dumb things I might have done had I not sought counsel. This is just part of being a Christian. It really is part of being a human. But as Christians, we are, we are free from whatever pride would cause us to think that we could go through life on our own. And Christians seek counsel. It might even look like formal counseling where you go to counseling. It doesn't, there's no, should be no stigma to that. It doesn't mean that you're insane. It means that you're wise. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. If you're not seeking counsel regularly, I think you're living recklessly. It's so important. So it, this is not the central point of this passage. It's just an, an under, underlying part of the atmosphere of it that I wanted to point out. And I want you to think about it. Who, who is your team of counselors? Who do you go to for good advice, wise, godly, Bible-saturated, gospel-centered advice? What do you have in your life right now that you could use some good advice? I would encourage you, maybe jot down a couple names of people you think maybe you should call up. Because I'll bet you have something going on right now that you could use some advice. Some wise counsel. You should do it. The Corinthian Christians sought counsel, and so should we. Now, the next two points are more inherent in the text itself. They were seeking Paul's advice about betrothed people. He had been talking a lot about marriage. He covered uh, marriage between people where they're, they're abstaining from marital intimacy. He covered unmarried people. He covered widowed people. He covered people who are Christians, married to non-Christians. And now he's covering people who are committed to be married but not yet married. This was a question that they had. And we'll see his response here in verses 26 through 28. Basically, his response specifically is, in view of the Christian struggle, remaining unmarried is good. 
in view of the struggle inherent in being a Christian in this messed up world, remaining single is good. Let's read it and I'll explain what, I, what he means. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, how many of you had this verse emblazoned onto your wedding cake? <laughs> this passage. It's very romantic, isn't it? I've gotten to where more and more I, I bring this out in my premarital counseling. How many of you nudged your spouses when you got to the end of verse 28? Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This was pretty revolutionary teaching, really. Marriage kind of has always been the assumed next step for people. And it was very important in the Jewish culture. Paul was a Jew. This was pretty revolutionary to say it's actually good to remain unmarried. Remaining unmarried was extremely undesirable throughout all Jewish history. You read through the, the Old Testament. Yet here's Paul saying it's good to remain single. And he's got more to say about it than what we're going to cover in this passage. In this passage, there's something very specific in mind. And that is what he refers to in verse 26, the present distress. He says, in, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, he doesn't elaborate on what this present distress is. Just thinking about the time period and where he was writing from and what was going on around similar times, it seems likely that he has in mind persecution. That it wasn't easy to be a Christian. That's something that's kind of difficult for us to get our minds around because here in America where we live, persecution in terms of actual, physical, tangible violence is really very rare for Christians. But you need to remember that has not been the case across the globe and throughout human history. More often than not, it has been very dangerous to be a Christian openly. What we have experienced in our lifetimes here in America is an anomaly when you think about the entire world and the entirety of human history. So let's try to think about it for a minute and look at an engaged couple or a betrothed couple from this perspective, from Paul's perspective here. Imagine that because you openly and publicly were baptized and proclaimed allegiance to Jesus Christ, and are known to associate with other Christians, that you are targeted by the police and often put in prison for trumped-up charges, whatever they can do. Put in prison, away from your family. By a government you can't rely on to really protect you because they too are against your Christianity. Imagine that because you're a Christian, you're often subjected to being beaten in public. Struck with whips, dragged out to the to the town center there in Mint Hill, where uh, it's two eighteen and lawyers right there, and just beaten 
senseless, almost dead, because you're a Christian. Imagine that you face the threat of being stoned for being Christian. Imagine that your Christianity isn't just about religious ritual or, or trying to... The hardest thing is not just getting up on Sunday morning to get to church, but that it's a life of hardship and danger and toil and uncertainty and vulnerability. Your things could be taken. You could end up hungry. You could have no place to live. So imagine that's what you've entered into. You said, I'm going to trust and follow Jesus Christ, even though I know that that means that this world is going to be against me in very real, literal ways. Now bring marriage into that context. You're living that rugged a life for Jesus Christ. You might want to think twice about getting married. The Lord calls you on a dangerous missionary journey. Are you going to take your spouse with you and subject them to that same danger? Will you be able to, with such a single mind, open yourself up to possibly being killed if you have a wife depending on you? See, this it's hard for us to understand this passage because we, we don't live anything like what they may, be, may have been facing. Everything I just described to you, Paul experienced in his other letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he outlines some of his experience as a follower of Jesus Christ. I just want to read it to you. This is 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 24. Paul wrote, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Forty was supposed to kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So here you get a glimpse of Paul's perspective as he writes. His Christianity was not a uh, just another topping on his life pizza. His Christianity was the dominating force in his life, and it drove him through some of the worst experiences possible for a human being to face. So as he's writing to these Corinthian Christians, he's not just thinking, oh, would marriage maybe make them a little more happy or a little less happy? He's thinking, we're engaged in a dangerous task together, following Jesus Christ and making disciples of all nations. Are you sure you want to commit to a spouse right now? He's advocating for an assumption swap. And I think that may be something that we need to consider as well. The prevailing assumption for us today and for him was that it's always good to get married. Everybody should get married. If you don't get married, something's wrong. And what Paul's advocating for is that we swap the assumption and assume Christians are going to be so engaged in the dangerous task of following Jesus Christ that they'll remain single. unless the Lord otherwise guides them to marry, unless they're unable to because of their bodily passions. 
unless they find that they can better trust and follow Jesus Christ with a spouse, and then they will get married. You know, Jesus was single, Paul was single. It's a pretty, it's a major shift to think that way in our culture. I definitely bring it up now in premarital counseling. It's a pretty major shift for us to think about our children this way. Instead of thinking my highest hope for my kids is that they grow up and meet a nice gal or a nice guy, get married, and have grandkids for me. Instead of that being the highest hope for our children, the highest hope being I hope my children grow up to trust and follow Jesus Christ no matter what, to devote their lives to making disciples of all nations, and that through them God brings about new birth in many, many new Christians. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have both. But I think often in our culture, we prize this and don't really think about this that much. And Paul's saying, this is everything. Marriage, children, that's a blessing from the Lord. He's not saying it's evil. You haven't sinned. But don't live as though biological family is everything. It's not. In fact, it's very, very temporary. And that leads to his next point. This first one, in view of the Christian struggle, remaining unmarried is good, is a very specific one for these Christians facing what they were facing. His next point is more general. And this is where we'll end. His next point is basically, the time is short, so live accordingly. The time is short, so live accordingly. Verses 29 through 31. I love verse 29 because often you do, when you're preaching especially, you want to make sure you understand what he means. And often he doesn't lay it out on a silver platter like he does here. But it begins, verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. When we think of the end times, if you're like me, I think your first image comes to mind is the very end times, like the last moments when Everything has gone crazy and everybody's at war and there's earthquakes and there's, and the sky is parting and Jesus is literally coming. That that's the, the last time, the end times. But the way the Bible uses that phrase is different. The way the Bible uses that phrase, we are in the last times right now. Every generation that has lived since Jesus' death and resurrection has been living in the last times. The end days. When Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to live and died on the cross to pay for our sins and arose from the grave, proving that everything he taught was true, that he is who he claimed to be, when he did all that, it initiated the beginning of the end. It accomplished what needed to be accomplished for God's people to be established. And everything after that on the timeline has been last days. 
Everything's been different since then. We're no longer anticipating salvation, the act to happen. We're now waiting for the consummation to come about. Salvation has been secured. We're just waiting for it to be fulfilled. So we are living in the end time. Since Jesus' death and resurrection, the appointed time has grown very short. It does not stretch on infinitely. There comes a time when you're on a beach vacation. All my illustrations are going to have to do with where I was last week. There comes a time when you have to pack up and get ready to go home. Up to that point, your mindset is, I am on vacation. But then somewhere along the way, once all the beach umbrellas are shut and washed off and put in the van, all the clothes are removed from the drawers and put in the bags, cupboards are cleaned out, somewhere during that process, your mind shifts from I am here on vacation to I am heading home. After Jesus' death and resurrection, God's people's mindset shifted to I am headed home. This is not my home. This is not permanent. The form of this world is passing away. And the things of this world are temporary. Even the really, really good things of this world are temporary, not permanent. And he lists some temporary things. And at first it sounds so strange to hear him talk like this, but I think we begin to get a sense of what he means. Verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. So here, marriage. There are few things in the human experience in this world as glorious and good and profound as marriage. Yet it is temporary. It might be the least romantic verse in the Bible, but it's important. Because we can easily mistake marriage for ultimate. And it's not ultimate. It's pointing toward the ultimate. Toward Jesus and His love for the church. And it is temporary. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. So here he brings into view the emotional ups and downs of life. Mourning, rejoicing, weeping, celebrating. These do not define us. These are not ultimate. So We all have different emotional temperaments and different life situations. Some of us one day are high as a kite, Next day, as low as can be. Some of us have deep down emotional struggles and it's very difficult for us. And we can become fixated on getting our emotions right. But here's another reminder. This this experience is temporary. These emotions don't define you. These emotions are not ultimate. And those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. This has to do with ownership, those who buy as though they had no goods. 
You know, whatever you have bought in this life, whatever you have amassed, your home, your cars, your collections, there's a sense in which you really don't own them, not in a permanent way, because all that's temporary. The last bit about dealing with the world, it's actually a play on words in the Greek that doesn't come through in the English, but it's the idea of those who use the things of the world should live as though they're not using them fully or not using them really. It's kind of a detachment from them. It's not a full use because it's so temporary. We haven't, when we went to the beach house, we didn't move in. You know, we, we squatted there for a week. I've been on some trips like that where I didn't even get my clothes out of my bag and put them in the drawers. I'm just not going to be here long enough for that. That's kind of the idea he has here. You don't move in. You don't start paying for the insurance on the house. You don't start painting the house and doing repairs. It's temporary. Paul's saying to these Corinthian Christians, okay, you're thinking a whole lot about marriage, and that's good. Marriage is important. But don't get carried away. It's not the ultimate. Nothing in this world is the ultimate because everything ultimate is eternal and it has to do with God and eternity. So I think the question for us as we close is have we moved into this world as if it was permanent? Have we unloaded all of our hopes into our marriage as though that was our eternal hope? Have we unpacked all our security into our emotional state as though that's where stability would be found? Have we poured all our focus into ownership and usage in this world? Into shopping, buying, maintaining, insuring, selling, dealing with things in this world. This is such a fresh perspective for us, American Christians, who are relatively comfortable to think about things like marriage and things like emotional things and things like ownership from an eternal perspective rather than the temporal perspective. Now I want you to think about your lives, your marriage, your things that you own, your endeavors, your emotional highs and lows. I want you to get all that in your mind and have them in mind as I read to you in closing. Second Peter chapter 3. Just sort of picture these things. Good things, but not eternal things. Peter's writing to the church. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by... Means of these, the world that then existed was deluged 
with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is our great hope. We want our marriages to be good and strong and healthy and godly and a blessing to us and to others. We, we do want emotional stability that is informed by the fruit of the Spirit. We want to be wise stewards when we're buying and selling, when we're dealing with the things of the world. We want all those things. But our ultimate hope doesn't rest in any of those things. It rests in the fact that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming back. He may be back before I finish this sermon. He may be back before you finish your lunch today. He may be back before you begin work tomorrow. Or it may be another thousand years. But He's coming back. And we get to, because we have God's Word, we get to look at our lives now from that perspective. As opposed to getting there and then looking back and realizing I wasted it. I was so preoccupied with these little worldly temporary things, I wasted it. There's a couple of images that the Bible uses to think about this. One is like being born. In Romans 8, he talks about creation groaning like in the pains of childbirth, waiting for this fulfillment that's to happen. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if this life will be to us then like our life in the womb is to us now. What were we worried about in the womb? What little thoughts were going through our minds? Well, you don't know. Inconsequential. I wonder if there will be a sense of that forgotten notion of why did everything seem so big? Why did everything seem so scary? Why did everything seem so important with these temporary things in light of the glories that we now see? Another image that the Bible uses is that of a, a tent and a house. Paul was talking not about Jesus' return, but his own death. That when we die, it's like folding up a tent and moving into a house. You know, if all you've ever known is a tent existence, you don't realize how glorious the house can be, how glorious it will be. So here, from this eternal perspective, we look at these temporary things and we realize these are tent things. These are temporary things. Good, but temporary. And soon we'll be moving into our house. Soon we'll be with God. 
Soon all this that God has begun in us through Jesus Christ will be fulfilled. That's where our hope lies. That's where our security lies. That's where our identity lies. Let's pray together. Father, this is such a difficult reminder for us to internalize and accept, really. I think we all accept it. I think we would say we accept it, but it's so difficult to live like this. Because the trappings of this temporary world are so appealing and so loud and seem so tangible. It's hard for us to imagine that one day they'll dissolve. They'll just melt away. And reveal that all the while you were the really real thing. I just pray that you'll help us through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Help us to see our lives with this eternal perspective. And to live accordingly. For your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name. Amen.